Where are all my friends? Dennis Keskin, my dude. We meet again. We meet in Germany. Finally. Yeah. It's, I'm so happy because we met at South by Southwest. I was doing the Porsche X hosting and you were on the panels. And at first it was just a name and I was like, oh, cool, whatever. And then as soon as we meet, I was like, oh my God, I made a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm. It was pretty instantaneous love, right? Yeah, dude. It yeah. was, uh, man, it was just like rare in my life that I meet somebody that is accomplished so much. I'll brag a little for you in, I guess, like a corporate setting or in big companies that still has this playful ethos of like scrappy rebel that just gets shit done. And I felt that with you quickly. You teaching me just like a game of like speaking, right? Where <laughs> instead of like you go up on a talk, but you have to incorporate funny words into your talk. That was funny. And I think as soon as we made each other say rapscallion, <laughs> what was your word for me? Because the first one, was it etage? I never... Etagere. Etagere. Etagere, yeah. Yeah, which I didn't know what it meant. I still think it was, it was like a bookshelf. Or something. <laughs> it's got to do with breakfast. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But as soon as like we got into that, I was just like, damn, this dude's a homie. And then I started to learn what you've been behind and kind of just the things that you've made happen. And on a cultural level, you've influenced a lot that I appreciate. And it's very rare to be able to sit down and talk to someone like yourself. And the whole reason I do the podcast is I want to share those insights and that mindset with the next generation. I want to push attitude like that forward. And try to inspire people to like find that lane for themselves and make culture and life better. So for all those reasons, I'm so stoked that you're down to do this. So thank you. It's my pleasure, sir. And I also want to preface this and really say you work at Porsche. You are, tell me your title because I want to do it right or how you would explain yeah, it. Yeah, I would say I'm responsible for brand management and partnerships yeah. in, in the central uh, marketing team here in the wonderful Porsche capital of Stuttgart. You've got a cool thing going, but what I really don't want to do is to be like, tell me all about Porsche and tell me speak on behalf of the brand and all that. It's like, no, 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 that's not what this it's is. one of my favorite topics. So it's a shame, <laughs> but okay. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, you get me talking about these cars and I'll talk forever, but I, I just wanted to differentiate that because I think the person that you are, like that's, that's where the pulp of this is. And yeah, we'll maybe reference a couple of projects or whatever that you've worked on, but I don't want to make it some like press conference where you have to speak to something. That's not what it is. Uh, so with all of that said, there is two little quotes that we started our conversation with, and I think we should just jump right in. Phobo. Phobo. Oh, yeah. Fear of better option. Yeah. We were talking about that right before we started. And for some reason, I feel like that encompasses every bit of what we talk about. And I love what you said about that. So maybe you could say that. And then I have a couple thoughts. Okay. Very happy to do so. So basically, I mean, it's where do we start that conversation? Um, like you said, so my job is to work in a big, big company. So the sheer size of it, the responsibility that comes along with it, that that's pretty big. On the other hand, we live in a world where we both know a single person on social media or a single little occurrence can have a huge impact as well. So yeah. how to balance out that speed and volatility with being a big company, I think organizationally, that's the huge challenge everyone in our situation is facing at the moment. And it's true that sometimes big companies, and I say that in plural companies, and I do not mean my company yeah. necessarily, um, they tend to, of course, introduce all these necessary, and the necessary part I want to emphasize, checks and balances when you go about a certain project, when you go about something. But of course, running through all these checks and balances also slows you down. And there's a very convenient way, I think, for big organizations to spend a lot of time doing a lot of things, idling around, achieving nothing at all. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that encapsulated perfectly by that FOBO thing, fear of vendor option, where basically the moment you are supposed to take a decision, because you know, in your, in your inner self, you might think, oh, maybe there's something that's slightly better. Maybe I should check on that as well. You come into a vicious circle yeah. where you send people back and they should then iterate and come up with the next option. Yeah. But then you do not achieve anything at all and no decision is being taken, Yeah, which is the worst. Well, it's interesting though, because I've adopted this mindset. I say it in kind of a different light. And I think that I, I adopted this, this saying to myself out of an insecurity because I was afraid. But ultimately, I, I have this saying where I say, I welcome you to fire me because I mm. used to be so afraid of getting fired. I used to be so afraid mm. of my option. My decision would not be the right one mm. and people wouldn't like me or, or I would do wrong, whatever. And I, ultimately I had to just say like, I am the person that I am and I believe in myself and I believe in the, my goodwill on these things. And if ultimately that doesn't align, then that's probably not the right fit. But the reason that I adopted that was what you're saying. And that's why I love that so much. As soon as you said it, I was like, holy shit, you're right. Because I think you said your best option is it, it's the Einstein quote. The, the right, right thing. to take the right decision. Yeah. The second best is to take the wrong decision. Yeah. And the worst option is to take no decision at all. Right. And I think right now in this day and age, we live in a crippling society of the fear of making a decision. And I hate seeing that creatives, that all of these artists and these people that are trying to innovate and take risks are not necessarily penalized, but there is this like, what if I do the wrong thing? And I just love when I talk to people that set the example of like, it's okay to take a risk and, and sharing that. But uh, like what I want to ask you, and I think about a proxy listener, I think about somebody listening to this that hasn't established that kind of authority to be able to do that. Where did that come from for you? When did that happen? When did you start to have that click? Yeah. Has it always been Porsche for you? What, what led you to this mindset before? Because that's fascinating to me. And I think by understanding that, it could help a lot of people. I think there are two reasons behind that. A, a Porsche reason and a personal reason. So I'll start with the Porsche reason first. Um, you know, I started working for Porsche as an intern 23 years ago. Yeah. Not exactly. I think there are two months missing. So, but approximately 23 years ago. And I think the spirit in the company back then, because Porsche was much smaller, but also Porsche was just coming out of a big, big crisis at the end of the nineties. The spirit really was to get shit done. Oh my God. So you were at like the 964 is ending. The Boxster is coming in. The Cayenne is coming in. Yeah, when I started working for Porsche, it was no Cayenne. So that was one of the first biggest project I was involved in, which was incredibly you know, exciting for me as a young car guy, yeah. a company like Porsche brings an SUV into the marketplace. But, right. but we're digressing. So I'm just yeah, saying the yeah. culture was the culture because yeah. we, we didn't want to talk so much about cars. That's so right. Yeah, just okay. Okay. I'm happy to do so. I'm happy to do so. <laughs> yeah. No, but the, the spirit really was about trusting people, be courageous, do your thing. And I think that DNA is still very much there in Porsche. So I'm, I'm really happy to say, of course, you have to be, let's say, character-wise predisposed to that kind of thing. But if you don't encounter an environment where that is encouraged and being accepted, then as you said, then maybe you have to move on somewhere else and it's not working at all. Right. And and I think Porsche is really great in the sense of getting pure, you know, trusting people mm. to do the right thing in their realm. And the trust, of course, has always been, you know, had, had a limit in terms of performance. So you cannot just build on trust and not deliver the results. But I think people are understanding that if you do something novel, something risky, yes, it can also sometimes lead to a situation where the outcome is not ideal. And that doesn't mean you should question the person. It's his skill, his integrity in the first place. You should talk about the reasons, yeah. take the learnings, and then move to the next one. So that's the 
organizational part why I think you so know, I can act that way. You were around good culture, like early yes, good culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think everyone's also responsible for the microculture around them as well. But yeah. at the end of the day, if that wasn't to be the big the big thread running through Porsche as a company, we wouldn't be what we are. And people like me, honestly, yeah. they wouldn't have the the freedom, the liberty to do the stuff they do. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a small piece of commentary on that of like, even though the company has grown, I mean, what, 4x from the time that you started being here in Germany right now and having some beautiful conversations with some of the employees at whatever level. I don't know. I'm so like, I don't understand corporate structure like that, but like, there's a feeling of there's a real pride and excitement in, in the people that I see working here. Like they want to be here. They love the brand and there's an ownership past the title in their name. And You talk about culture. It's I'm fascinated by culture. I'm fascinated by people following their purpose and doing what they love. And I don't know what it is, but there's clearly some kind of ethos here where that exists. So it's cool to hear that that certainly existed even 23 years ago. And by whatever that is, and that proximity of people, that mindset was developed. Because I think that if you're that aware of it, it's important that we carry that forward and that people understand how important that is. Yeah. So anyway, so continue. And, and I think, but I also want to say it's important that people kind of recognize that they don't just, you know, act on autopilot and they take it for granted. It's important that you have people in the organization. I think we have them who kind of see that freedom, who kind of sense, you know, that opportunity that they've been given and then they pass it on to the next generation. Right. Because, because it's that. always, it's always about, you know, at the end of the day, people talk about culture, yes. corporate culture. And I hate the term corporate culture yeah. because a corporate is sounding boring anyway. Yeah, there's not that much but, real but, culture. But, but I don't think, you know, if you look at it really 100% objectively, a company cannot have a culture. People can have a culture. So it's about having the right people in the right places, you know, being messengers of that culture, yeah. influencing people around them, making sure this gets passed on. That's what makes the difference. And I'm also saying... Andrew, to be honest, I don't think there, there can be something like a Porsche culture because I know so many people here and the mm -hmm. culture is different in different places. In Weissach, no in Weissach, there is a different way of going about things as in Zuffenhausen and maybe in the department next to me, there might be another microculture. There right. are some basic truths that we all believe in. Right. But then I also yeah. think with the amount of people we have, there is a lot of, you know, freedom of expression, yeah. which is good. And yeah. which also adds to the diversity of, of ideas and, you know, standpoints being taken in a company. I'm just, I'm just saying yeah. if, if we were hundred percent alike in every single facet of how we go about things, it would be pretty boring. And I also don't think that we would come up with this, you know, best possible result. So it's good that you meet certain people, certain, you know, rapscallions where you think, yeah. Oh, they have a special way about going things. And it might not necessarily hundred percent match with how I want to go about things. Yeah. But if you trust the person in the sense of the goal is important, the goal is aligned, and here's his specific way of doing things, Porsche, there's a big readiness to accept that yeah. and say, I'm not trying to normalize people. I don't try to you know, compress everyone into the exact same mold. Mm -hmm. There is some freedom left and right of that to be the person you are and also to foster a specific culture around you. Yeah, so it's like you almost have to embrace and respect that people are going to do things differently from you. Yeah. And love that. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that's my biggest professional learning in everything I have done to be cool with people doing things differently than I would do them. Really? And because, because yes, I mean, if you take over responsibility, if, you, if you're leading a team, if you're leading a department, of course, you are ultimately responsible of the output of that. And there's this kind of, let's say, maybe trap of yeah. saying, okay, in order to make sure that I can be 100% behind everything that's coming out of my responsibility, I got to be 
micromanaging the processes, how people go about things. But yes, the learning is the best result is achieved if people have the freedom to express themselves. Yeah. Yes, you need to align on, on goals. You need to align on certain principles because yeah. it's not like the Wild West and everyone can do what they want. But being cool with looking at something and saying, I wouldn't do it that way. But I, I trust the person. I trust our joint understanding of the goal and I let it run. That's something where you have to make, I think, your peace with when you win, when an organization grows. Yeah. Because if you try to micromanage all these little steps, A, you're taking away creativity and freedom of expression of people, at least in my line of work, marketing, it's yeah. not what you do. Right. And secondly, you, you lose just so much time and energy, again, in achieving nothing at all, because all of these things are not, you know, designed to make the best possible end product. They're just designed to control the steps in between. And if you focus too much on, on the way certain steps are done, as opposed to focusing on the direction these steps are being taken, yeah. you can spend your whole day in the, in the company, a whole week in the, in the office and still achieve nothing at all. And it also probably becomes safer and more watered down, right? Yeah. Like if you make too many people compromise a great idea or say, yeah, it's good, but what if we do this? Then to them, it's less of their idea. They're less excited about it. And by the end of it, you kind of just get this safe, yeah. meet in the middle ish thing. Yeah. And especially in marketing these days, I think the, that's the end of creativity. That's the end of stuff that really pushes through the clutter and makes people stand up and notice. Right. I mean, I'm, it's easy for me to say because, um, uh, I think being responsible for marketing products, um, you always have a bias when it comes to your own responsibility. But I think everyone listening to that podcast will agree. You all, we all know that type of advertising, which is, technically perfectly done but still it doesn't touch you at all and you almost see like the different armadas of people who have kind of normalized it checked it balanced it out and then you know it's a technical perfect execution but you still look at it and like okay so what it's just so safe it's yeah. just so polished that you're like all right cool i've seen yeah. it and talking about safety i think the, the second thing i wanted to touch upon yeah the well, personal gonna, yeah one, the person good um i think you know I look at my personal upbringing and, and my family life. And, and the question is, because we, we use the term risk, right? So mm -hmm. what's the risk? I think in, in the greatest scheme of things in this world, I have almost like a zero risk. Yes, it's not nice if you get a telling off by your boss. Yes, it's not nice if your marketing campaign doesn't work. But what that type of risk are we, are we really talking about here? So look, my, my grandparents, they were very, very, you know, um, you know, down to earth people. I think if, if they, if they have, if I put them in a time capsule and show them the life that I, their grandson would live one day with all the opportunities, they would not believe it. So on, on my father's side, for instance, um, my grandparents were refugees because, you know, they, they come from a place of a country which is now called Russia. And sometimes history repeats itself. So some people, it's called them Russians, didn't want them to live there. So they kind okay. of were refugees. They escaped to Turkey. They had to build up a completely new life there. Then for my father, it's been very, very similar because he was one of those people who came to Europe then when he was, when he was younger, just, you know, to find a proper job and also to give his life a new opportunity. That's where he met my mother. But he's also been, you know, deeply marked by migrating, leaving his country behind and trying to build a life for himself. And I have that in my family. And it's not like when we meet as a family, we kind of, you know, commiserate together of how hard that has been. But it's something that's, you know, being passed on by my parents to me, being grateful for the opportunities we have. Yeah. And that's why I think sometimes the risk or the pressure points I have in my business life, I really try and look at them on a broader scale and say, look, guys, I mean, yes, I don't want this marketing campaign not to work, but 
there are people who really do have different problems in this time and world. And so perspective. No, I mean, it's just important. I mean, as I said, I think, you know, my grandparents, basically, they wanted to survive, yeah. if I'm honest. Yeah. Then my parents, I think they wanted to, to have a good life for their children. So we got three brothers, all of them Karnats, by the way, all of them. <laughs> um, and, and that's where they put all their life and energy. And, and now I'm the next generation. I mean, I have that immense privilege of having a job like the one I'm having, having these great people around me. Yeah. And it's a cliche if I'm saying I just try to be grateful all the time, but I really try to because I got that perspective. And I think when you talk about taking risks and what you do with your life, that's the way I see it. Dude, I love that though. I love that. And it's crazy because I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to that are children of immigrants or people that have gone through things like that, the perspective of like, it's just the volume is turned down on the stresses of these things because your perspective of like, I have a bed to sleep in. Like I have safety and I have these things and totally. it just really makes you appreciate it. I also think that the kids of, of families like that see that and respect the sacrifice and then work harder. And I, it's a theme that I can't, I've never like studied it to see if it's a real thing, but I swear I see it in the States so much. Kids are like first generation kids from the States, same thing. And like, you just see that theme. And I had no idea that that was like that in your family. Yeah. But you look, I'm the first generation right. in my family. Yeah. The first generation who can really, you know, spend the whole day about almost like self-expression. Right. I mean, my grandparents, they had to survive. <laughs> my parents, they had to build a life, the foundation of which my life is built on. And they right. sacrificed so much for us, their children. Um, that was really their priority number one. Yeah. And now here I am. I mean, look, I was probably the first one in my family who had a free choice of job. Right. In the, in the sense of, you know, do anything you like. Of course, you, you should earn your living. That would be nice. But my parents were incredibly supportive. And there they was gave not everything like, to have you be at that spot. Absolutely. And so yeah. question to that, though, because that's yeah. actually a great way to ask it. Did you feel a pressure to choose the right thing? Or like, did you always know it was going to be Porsche? Oh, did you always know it was going to be cars? <laughs> so my father, who unfortunately uh, passed away five years ago, God bless him. Yeah. He was a big car guy. So one of my sweetest memories in childhood is on a Saturday afternoon, me and my brothers doing the ritual of washing the car, just spending time around, you know, the piece of metal. That was, I think, endearing me a lot to car and car culture. And he was a connoisseur of cars as well. So I think that was greatly passed on to me. And then my older brother, he's also complete expert in terms of cars. And then me as the second born, for me, it was also kind of natural to, you know, go into that direction. So um, th that's been a really, really early predisposition. And then when it came to choosing a job, well, I mean, for, I, I did my studies in economics, but before I did that, actually, <laughs> I did like one and a half years of study to become a social worker, which, oh, wow. which may sound a little bit weird because I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the car guy I am. But um, in Germany, you know, after um, completing your school, your A-levels, um, when I was young, you had to either go to um, the German army for like eight or nine months or you did social work. So I did social work. And being the guy I am, I volunteered to drive people around in cars, you know, ah. so that, that was, that was, that was so funny. Um, some of them were, you know, disabled. Some of them had mental um, problems, but that was basically for 14 months what I did. And I discovered a very, very deep satisfaction in actually helping people to be, you know, to achieve more than what they normally should. Wow. So I had, I had one person that I was then getting a little bit more responsible for who was both blind, but also, you know, physically disabled, but he wanted to do a normal school education. So I drove him to school every morning, 
because he was blind. And we're talking about 1997 here. I don't know if you were born back then. And but, yeah. <laughs> but, but we had that kind of strange computer setup with, you know, this, um, you know, writing for blind people, Bry. Oh, so Braille, I, yeah. I would basically type in what's on the board and then he could read it in parallel. And that was deeply satisfactory, really, to see every single day how you can make the life of a single person much, much better. And I think based on that positive experience, so my first, my first impetus was to study social work. And I know back then my mother said to me, you can do it if you want, but I'm, I guarantee you here now, you're not going to finish that. It's, it's not everything you are. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. But she was right as always, you know, yeah. mothers tend to be right. Yeah. And then after one and a half years, it was for me as interesting as it was, I kind of noticed that the abilities you have to influence and shape things in that line of work are pretty limited. Right. Because yes, you can something do something really great for one person, but you always will have like nine or 10 persons that you will not be able to help. And right. I was trying to be honest with myself and say, that's for me, emotionally, that's not a good equation. Yeah. So right. the, what I can achieve will always wear me down more than the things that I can do. It's not enough of a difference. And then I did a little bit of a you know, mental reconfiguration and I thought about, you know, what I'm really passionate about, cars. Okay. And then I, I took the decision to study economics. Wow. There you go. Well, it's crazy to think though. It's like you could, somebody could be like, oh, cool cars. Like you're just making a bunch of things, but it's like, I think that you've been a part of art and like there's been so much expression and you know like you are a part of the art 968 you the vex a very small part well sure but like the <laughs> vex car the vision gt yeah so many of the arsham cars and it's like all of a sudden i mean you couldn't have you wouldn't have known that when you started but I now otherwise it would have been even more interesting right? <laughs> the only but thing i, I think knew about was that. That's crazy. i, I want to be in car industry that's the one thing I, I set myself as a goal i knew that studying economics would be a good path into that and then when it was time to choose my first internship 23 years ago i only applied with car manufacturers mm -hmm. germany luckily enough there are some very good ones yeah so i'd say i yeah. have to say and i had a um had an internship already with another car manufacturer, which I will not disclose at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a last minute opportunity, a Porsche interview popping up. Someone asked me, you want to come by? You're just the like interview. And I was very open and said, look, I already have that kind of confirmation from this other company. I want to put you into, into any pressure, but it would be nice if that be a quick decision because I don't want to leave them uh, out there. And I said, yeah, you can have the job. So like, just like that. And the no guy way. said, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can have the job. Okay, I have one other point, but because there's a, a something that I like to do in the podcast uh, to just fully take me there quickly, tell me mm -hmm. day one internship, like your first moment as a car fan. What do you remember? Was there a car in the parking lot? Was there a smell of an office? Was there a person? Was there an action? Like take me to the moment. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I think I might have lost a lot of recollections. I can only you know rely to on the big emotional. Sure. moments that are still sure. there for me. So first of all, I had to buy a suit and a tie because back then you came into the office in a suit and a tie. Yeah. So prior to me having my first day, that was the first time being a legit business person. So I remember wearing that stuff for the first time that day and just feeling completely misplaced. Now, yeah. I wouldn't say it didn't fit, but you know, the first <laughs> yeah, time you, like, you <laughs> arrive there like a uniform <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, what's going to be like? Um, that's one thing I remember that feeling of vividly being a little bit out of place, maybe. For the listener, he's then, chilling in a t-shirt, jeans right now. So things have, uh, blow up is real. Uh, things changed for the better in a lot of places <laughs> in the last 23 years. So then I walked into the building and yes, there's, you know, beautiful cars parked in front of the building, 100%. So yeah. that, that was already when I had my internship uh, interview it was the same thing you walk yeah. in there you're like oh this this is the right place yeah you know? yeah 
And then the second thing is, I mean, you know, when you have a first day like that, of course, you are like, well, the people I'm going to meet, how are they going to treat me? And, you know, just from day one, I felt at home. People were so nice, so welcoming. So you're part of the team of the family now. And um, I really remember not wanting to go home that day because it was just so, so exciting. And there was one person um, who showed me uh, Photoshop was a very rare um, occurrence wow. in 2000. So he had Photoshop installed on his computer and he showed me because they took a picture for a catalog of the interior of a car. And in order to demonstrate the cup holder, a Coca-Cola can was in there. But of course, for, you know, legal reasons, you can't show the Coca-Cola logo. So he showed me on, on Photoshop how to get rid of the logo. And I don't know if your generation is able to appreciate that. But if that I happens am. to a random guy in 2000, yeah. that's really like maybe the first time you've been on ChatGPT. Yeah, like where you're just like, it just did what? But I think the whole day was such a stimulation. And at the end of the day, I was really, if you think it sounds corny, cheesy, scripted, I don't care because it exactly was that way. I went home that day and I said to myself, shit, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and I don't know if it's auto-suggestion or how you would call that, but now, 23 years later, I, I still have that feeling of this is the right place for me. I want to be here. And I the guy is still working like 50 meters from here, the guy with the Coca-Cola can. So no I do way. still meet him. The guy who did the interview with me um, and was responsible for opening the door to the Porsche universe. He is in Singapore now, but we chat on a regular basis. Um, it's always been a story of people and spending time with people in a positive way. That's the, honestly, that's the most important thing why I love working for Porsche. And it, I know people may think like your most important kind of intro is to drive the car. So being exposed to great people, great places and all of that is a hundred percent true. I'm going to lie if I t told you that driving a 911 is, is not giving me still. Yeah. Cruise but, but at the, the end people. of the day, you can take, you can take all of that away. Yeah. The, the one thing that still motivates me, makes me smile, makes me uh, get up in the morning. It's meeting these people. And That's spending time so with them. cool. Yeah. Okay. So the last piece that I wanted to talk, I mean, I could talk to you forever. I have a billion questions, but I want to respect time and Hey, it gives us an excuse to do it later again. Um, <laughs> whichever way you like it, Mr. <laughs> well, uh, funny enough. So we're sitting down here in your office and I, I didn't even say anything to you, but I see this little quote and it, it makes me think of something and I'm curious of your take, but it Ooh. says life, com life comes at us in waves. We cannot predict or control those waves, but we can learn to surf. And I saw that and I was like, fuck, that's cool. And it just made me think, like, we talked about all the good here, but in all reality, in your life and your experiences in pushing to push art forward, there's probably a lot of times where shit doesn't go the way you want it to. And to a listener that is inspired and that then does want to go take risks, what's your advice to dealing with things when they don't fully work out? And how do you, what's your mindset there? So first of all, yes, sometimes things don't work out. Secondly, when they don't work out, it still hurts me as much as the first time they didn't work out. Um, so I think there's no, not an easy recipe to pass along when it comes to that. Seeing, I mean, just talking on the top of my head, I always try to do three things that are really important to me when it comes to projects where I know they could be edgy and they could be on the line. First is you do your due diligence before. So we talked a lot about being spontaneous, being you know, risk taking, but at the end of the day, you can eliminate a lot of these things when you do your homework first. Mm. So if you really believe in an idea, even if it's a, let's say more, uh, outrageous one or more risky one, I would still say, even if you have that strong feeling inside yourself of, yes, I know we have to do that. I have that gut feeling that it's going to be great. Do your homework, 
check the rational aspects of the job because sometimes there are obvious pitfalls that you can avoid. Right. And also recognize your own bias. Mm. So ideally, you have people around you that you can use just as a you know means to bounce ideas off and say, look, here's this great idea. I'm totally in love with it, which makes me not objective. So you have to have the right people that you can trust. And in the end, they will also be able to tell you, Dennis, that's a bad idea. Don't mm -hmm. do it. If th that's the first really yeah, big like advice, always, yeah. always get someone in who's looking at it without the passion that you have, because the passion that you have towards idea also makes you blind to certain yeah. risks. So once you have eliminated then those obvious risks, the second thing I'm going to say is communicate properly. Mm -hmm. So I always, I mean, that's a quite personal question, but I always try to ask myself, if shit hits the fan, who are the two or three first people who will be exposed to that negative kind of, you know, result? And I really want to make sure that they know what I'm up to oh, wow. because, you know, if, if they hear it from an, again, a question of trust, but if they hear it from someone else, it, don't ask me, it's not the same as asking for permission or approval. Right. It's just about being straight and say, look, this is the decision we've taken. This is the project we're going to do. We're hundred yeah. percent behind that, but just so you know, I'm aware it's on the riskier side. So if things go wrong, at least, you know, yeah. my story, why we went into this and you got the context. Right, so right. The so then they thing. don't look foolish by yeah. having your back or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. If they want to have my back, <laughs> yeah, which, which can happen, which cannot happen. Or they can say, that's Dennis. And the <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Dennis did there. And the third thing is, when it goes wrong, just mm. be open. Mm. So especially in big companies and big cultures, I think there's a whole art form of bullshitting and making bad results look half bad or even half positive. And I think everyone's so tired of that. And, you know, I think it's really refreshing if things go wrong, if you have the openness to say, look, I wanted to achieve something, it didn't work out. So before we discuss anything else, I want you guys to know, I know that. Ah. It's not, I'm not here to sugarcoat things. I'm not here to tell you a story why everything was great and then some you know, little occurrence kind of tipped it into a different direction. At the end of the day, it's my responsibility. It's my job. I know the world we live in. And if it doesn't work, didn't work, I take over responsibility. And I don't know if that translates in, in English in the same way, but I think there's a it big does. difference. And I try to tell it also to people in my team between responsibility and guilt, right? Oh, wow. I mean, I don't think that anyone who, who did the due diligence, anyone who tried to inform people properly yeah. is guilty of a failure in the sense yeah. of you should be condemned, you should be set aside. Right. And it's just what happens. Sure, but you are responsible. But you are responsible for the stuff that you're responsible for. And responsibility for me means if things do not work out the way they should out, you stand up, you face the storm, you say, yep, it's my, my remit, it's what I've been up to. And hopefully you don't have to do that like 12, 14 times a year. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it's still a performance-driven, you know, world we live in, and also yeah. in Porsche, it is. But if it it happens, it does happen. And my experience was, and you know, it's one thing for me to sit here, you know, casually with you and talk about that. It's much harder when you're in front of these people and have to admit to that. Oh and by God. the way, it doesn't matter if the people are superior to you or if they're in your team. It's just the human act yeah. of going out there and admitting yeah, failure, sucks. which take, which hurts yeah, yeah. and it sucks absolutely. But but it's it's also like a no refreshing thing because um at least for me that's the way i'm wired I'm, you grow by doing that yes you grow but i'm also even more determined for the next time and, yeah. and it also teaches you maybe when when you look at a f not 100 percent well executed project also teaches you if you analyze it rationally to where were maybe little pointers and markers where i should have been more receptive and maybe things already pointed to a certain direction and then you try to learn for the next project because at the end of the day it's not about a vanity thing and, you know, it's cool to be 
admitting defeat uh, two times per year. Ideally, you do not have to have these situations yeah, at all. Right. But don't you think that by having that attitude and having people around you where you're not like, I don't know, like absolutely scolded for that, it's like, then you respect it. You know what you failed in the last time. You learn from that. You get better, you get better, you get better, and you do have less of those. And I think that that's kind of the thing is like, embracing owning the failures and having people around you that will support you or understand i think that's like culture or support yeah. that really makes people great and, that, and that's why you know you, you did a great job of talking about me personally and saying so many nice things about <laughs> me but in a big company you're never alone you're always being you know you stand on the shoulders of certain cultural things of people around you who support you who give you freedom so at the end of the day it's always about having the right people around you, like, mm -hmm. like like always in life. And yes, we do have a Porsche that understanding that if I do something edgy, risky, novel, and it doesn't work out, and if people are honest and upfront about that and why it didn't work out, then as you said, people are not being shut down. There is a, a fair discussion in terms of, okay, what, what can we learn from that? How can we do it better next time? Yeah. And there's also a culture, if, if you do the very same, the very same mistake next time again, of course, people will ask even harder questions. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's fair. This is not a, um, however much I love my job, I also have the responsibility to come up with the best result for the company right. in terms of using the resources I get, human resources, the budget. Yeah. And, and it's fair if people ask questions. I wouldn't want it any other way. But if I bring that back and like we just talk about a people level, I talk about somebody that's not working in a big company. I think there's a lot of lessons that I've learned in talking to you of just like, own your failures, be willing to take those risks, but also surround yourself with great people. Like a lot of what you're saying can be at an individual's, you know, like if you work on your own, if you work with 10 people, if you work with a thousand, like a lot of these principles are there. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you because it's like, I, I just felt like there was something there and I'm sitting here and I'm like, yeah, yeah. there sure was. I, I'll tell you one thing, when you work for, and I had the privilege to work with real artists, people like, you know, who are with their unique creative vision and a unique skill, really yeah, right. come to the fore and build something where you say like, wow, wouldn't have thought of that being possible. I don't see myself as a person like that. You mm. know, I, I don't have a unique artistic skill. I don't have a unique car knowledge in the sense of there are the darn other people who know as much as I do. I think the best thing I can do is assemble a cool group of people, create a microculture that enables them to be themselves in the best possible way. And then make sure we, we, we talk about goals, strategies on a regular basis and come Damn. up with a thing. And, and I think when I started in my line of work, right, I didn't know I have these skills and I wouldn't say, I don't want to sit here and say, no, I know I have these skills. It's not like that. I still question myself in terms of could I have done that better? Do I do it in the right way? But I think the more I do my job, and there's this strange connection with the first job I studied for being a social worker. Yeah. Um, and if I just may say that I had one course, which was called uh, child's psychology, which, which was the most fascinating thing I have ever listened in my profession, in my no education. Way. And I do see a lot of similarities to working with people in an office. <laughs> but, but I think that's the ultimate, the ultimate skill in my job, just the human side, having mm -hmm. the right people with the right attitude at the right space. And if, if I get it right, then the results, I wouldn't say that they appear automatically, but you dramatically increase the probability Dude. of good results coming I'm out. So glad you said that too, because I spiritually relate to you saying that is like, I don't think that I'm an artist. I don't think I have some crazy skill, but then I look around the team that I work with and I look around some of the people that I know and I'm like, you are a superhero. 
like what you think of and the way yeah. that you design or create something, I could not begin to. But then talking to someone like yourself that's had this success, it's like, again, I think about a listener listening to this. It's like, you don't necessarily have to be that prolific artist. Just by putting the right people in the right place and deflecting all the BS and letting these artists do that, you then become a superhero. Yeah. And it's like, there's so much a place for someone like that. And you look at what that influences and it's so important. And, and, and I just want to discredit that. Totally. And let me say that, Andrew, I always want to be hundred percent open and say the superhero is always the brand, it's always Porsche. Mm. So I think also in our team, we do not try to push ourselves as individuals. Mm. We, we try to live up to the standards of the Porsche brand. And I have a really interesting and young, you know, extremely motivated guy in my team. I love working with him. And it's exactly like you said, I'm completely in awe of his skills. And I do know I'm never able to do the stuff he does yeah. creatively, conceptually. He's a full on genius. But when we work together, he always, when we meet people, he introduces me like, this is Dennis, my boss. He kind of takes care of all the political bullshit and, <laughs> and I do the creative side. And, and I love that. And it's totally fine by me because that's, that's, I think the way that I should be looking at my job. I look right. at myself like an, I don't know, excavator or what's uh -huh. the right English term. I'm just, you know, digging away all this bullshit yeah. that prevents people like him yep. to be the best version of themselves professionally. Yep. And if I manage that, it's the ultimate reward for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then, then you, you can be really happy with your day's work. And sometimes it involves risk taking. Sometimes yeah. it involves, okay, we disregard that um, yeah. little aspect because I know it's not going to help the result. Sometimes it's about being fatherly, brotherly, you know, encouraging people. There are different tactics to come to that space. But at the end of the day, that's for me, honestly, the ultimate satisfaction, seeing a group of people come into a really good result and knowing that my part was I kept them away from all the FOBO stuff yes. that would have prevented them to get there in time and quality. And, and maybe that's a skill I have that is well-developed. But I didn't know that when I, was, when I started working for Porsche. How could you? No, you, right. you, you don't know it except as you are in that situation, you compare yourself with people around you, and that's where you kind of form your opinion. Okay, this is what I can do, maybe a little bit better than other people. And that's where you find your niche. Damn, I think we did it. I if think you we say did so, it. yeah. I mean, I will talk to you forever, and we didn't get to talk about your era of the specific cars you were around when you started. I didn't get to make you sweet brag about the Arsham cars and the Art cars and the Vex cars and all the other things you've been a part of. Uh, but I think there's plenty more time and other opportunities for that. So let's for do this, part two, Andrew, and let's this time let's do the the boy talk and talk about cars. Yeah, I love talking about yeah. Cars. But it's it's honestly it's good to reflect on certain things. Um, that is maybe you know a lot of the stuff that we discussed today is something I normally would do rather subconsciously. So it's mm -hmm. been it's been great to to think about it and also with your line of questioning, if mm -hmm. I may say so, to to discuss these things. So I will definitely also take away some some points for myself going forward. Well, I'm so happy to hear that because again, it's like, it's, it's selfishly just as much for me as it is every other listener. It's like, we all know these things, we all share these values, but to be reminded of them and to take 30 minutes to just talk about them, it kind of like reminds you of your ethos and your values and keeps you going and reminds you why it matters. And sometimes I go back, like, this is now this time capsule of like, I'll think about the people I've talked to and I'll think about needing motivation. I'll be like, I wish I could talk to Dennis again. I'm like, oh, I got that episode, you know? And it's like, <laughs> I think that that's really helpful. So you can always thank show you. me a text. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to. I just don't talk to you after this. I'm like, I got the episode. I'm going to listen forever. And, and maybe that's the last thing I want to say what's really important for me. I have the immense privilege of having a job where I'm constantly meeting new interesting people 
being able to discuss with them. And you have to be honest to yourself. Of course, a lot of that is because you work for the company you work for. That's because you have the brand that you work for behind you. Yeah. And there are tons and tons of people out there. I'm really convinced about that who are just as inspiring, motivated, cool as Mr. Cramp and Mr. Keskin. But maybe they didn't have the luck also, you know, yeah. to like, you know, that one guy who did the job interview for me and as an internship and said, yeah. you can't have it. Um, you need to have these people in your life who support you in the right way and guide you in a certain direction. Yeah. And I think that kind of gratitude, that's, that's really important because it's yeah. all fair and good to sit here in a podcast and, and you know, be philosophical about how right. to do things. But there are so many people who would probably be capable of doing the same thing if they had the opportunity, if they right. were given different kind of path into that. But to challenge you or to add to that, I think that more people are, but they're afraid to start. Yeah. So it's like, for me, if I can inspire people, it's like, I don't think I should be here. Like I, this wasn't the original plan, yeah. but then four years ago, I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. And then it like, it only happened because I started and the start was so unclear. Yeah. So that's my thing is like, you're right. And there's a billion people that are more qualified, but if I could inspire five of them to just go start the thing that they're probably great at, that will be how, like my life's legacy, you know? So it's like, that's why this is so important. And I really, honestly, I really admire that in you and, um, it's a beautiful way maybe to end that discussion. And I'm, again, just as a summary, I've been a totally normal kid out of nowhere who got the opportunity to work for a company like Porsche. I had tremendous support from my family, from my parents, my brothers to, to be the person I am. But then it's always a question of opportunity, a little bit of luck yeah. and what you do about these things. Yeah. But nobody, I think, should be entitled or walking around earth and saying, look, this is all happening because I'm so great Dude, because I got these skills. Not. Always yeah. be grateful for yes. all of these things that led you on your path. Yes. Be grateful, but also start. Go start the thing. You yeah. know? What's that the internship worst? started 23 what's, years ago. What's the worst thing that can happen? I mean, as I said, at the end of the day, the, the modern human being and the problems he is preoccupied with in the greatest scheme of things, you know, looking at history, but also in 2023 of a lot of countries, these are luxury problems. They so, are. you know, just do it. And again, what's the worst thing that can happen? Right. Yeah. You have the platform to even try to start. That's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Man, we did it.